Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge one for me, a legend, a legend, you know, in, in, the, in the band, and also a legend behind the boards as well, producing... Some unbelievably important punk records. We'll get into all this in a second, but my guest on the show this week, or this episode, is Paul Meharan from the Zero Boys, from Dandelion Abortion, and as I said, some of the greatest productions and punk records ever, ever. We get into all this stuff in one second. Oh, this is a good one. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, Podcast at gmail.com that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire Tristan Abraham and you will get the message to me you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien if you want to support the show the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it letting everyone know that you know that we do this podcast and it is uh, a place where you can you know just go and check out conversations with different people about punk uh, you can also uh, subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. And thank you to everyone that does do uh, that over there on iTunes. I really do appreciate it. And you can also, if you are so inclined, head over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all the people that support us over there. Um, and uh, yeah, see the fun stuff that happens over there on Patreon. I'll write. Oh, and also before we get into the show, I'm really excited to get into the show. As you can tell, uh, fucked up the band I play in. We'll be going on tour. We're going out with Faith No More in the beginning of September or the middle of September. Look up those dates. I think it starts on my birthday, September the 16th. So if you come to that show, bring me a present, uh, and then we will be uh, doing some more shows with them. I think four shows with them in total, and also playing Riot Fest. And then in the new year, we will be coming to. Hopefully a city near you. If not, I apologize, but we're going to be doing the David Comes to Life 10th anniversary tour. That record is being reissued by uh, Matador Records on Colored Vinyl. You can, I think, find out more information over there at matadorrecords.com. And then also, Fucked Up's got this 90-minute long song called Year of the Horse that's available now on all those streaming platforms everywhere. Uh, and it is coming out on vinyl on our good buddy Scotty Karate from Tank Crime Records, tankcrimerecords.com, I believe. Uh, follow Scotty on social media at Tank Crimes. He's a he's a great follow, very very uplifting, very positive person. So, um, and I'm very happy that he's been putting that out on record. 
All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, the legend Paul Mahern is here from the Zero Boys and from uh, Dandelion Abortion and Ask and uh, 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 what's uh, oh, uh, Dat- Datura Seeds and Ian Breno and uh, other projects. And if that wasn't enough, if his incredible musical resume in front of the microphone wasn't enough. He also has this unbelievable legacy of classic punk records and not just punk records, but we're focused on the punk records here. Let's be honest, uh, that he's produced, you know, and engineered. And we get into all of that on today's show. This is a really fun one. Uh, the zero boys record vicious circle. I'm, I'm going to say that's one of the greatest American hardcore records of all time. I think, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. I think that's a, a fairly commonly held opinion by people that are, um, that, well, by people that have heard that record, it's a phenomenal album. They also have this single "Living in the '80s" that is very much near and dear to me. I got a copy of a of the test press given to me years ago as a as a present by my loving wife Lauren, and I, I treasure it. They're, they're one of my favorite bands of all time, and so this was a huge treat. I also got to say thank you, now that we're talking about presents, to my buddy Zach, who gave me the Ardent uh, Paul's mixtape, or I guess promo tape that Ardent Studios put out for him. You'll hear all about this in a second, but thank you to my buddy Zach Feldberg for giving me that thing, because oh, I got all these gifts that I got to call upon today. This is why you have these archives. This is why you collect this shit, is because eventually you'll be interviewing one of your heroes, and you'll be like, God damn it, I got, that's right, I got all this cool stuff that I want to talk to him about. Anyway. I'm not going to ramble on or brag about my shit anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Paul Mahern on Turned Out a Punk. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Damien. Well, Thanks as for I, having me. Well, as I was just kind of briefly telling you off air, I feel like you're one of the last people I've yet to truly punish in the way that I, I, I want to because... I am a massive fan of not just the music you've made, which is incredible and highly informative on every band I'm in or and everyone in my band, to be honest, but also all the records you've worked on kind of behind the scenes. Like you're going to connect so many dots for me. So thank you in advance for doing that. <laughs> okay. uh, but I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is Paul, how did you get into punk from the first time you ever came across the genre? Okay. Well, when I was in junior high, uh, I was, you know, real heavily into bands like Black Sabbath and uh, Alice Cooper, stuff like that. I was into whatever was kind of like the hardest stuff I could find. And then um, eventually, you know, I started to hear grumblings of punk rock. Um, but it wasn't really until I saw the pistols on the cover of Cream magazine that it really smacked me in the head. And I realized, oh wow, this is something completely different. And at, at that time, this was this would have been like when maybe right before I entered high school. So the summer before high school. And there was one record store in Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where I was living at the time that sold punk records. And you had to take two buses to get there. So you had to transfer. So it was like, I would go on a Saturday. It was like a, you know, pretty much a half day affair. You'd ride a couple of buses out to this uh, Karma Records, it was called. And they'd have this, they had this tiny little section of punk records that would never had more than like 50 discs in it. 
And that's kind of when I started my collection. And, you know, back then, the, the way you found out about any good music is you, through the guys that worked at the record store. And so once they kind of realized that I was into punk or, or getting interested in it, then they, they would always have suggestions for me. And I started to build my record collection. And um, I think the thing, you know, that really hit me was that, you know, especially like the Sex Pistols and that whole vibe really seemed to be making fun of all the other records that I had in my collection. <laughs> and I really connected with that level of, you know, cynicism and sarcasm and, and humor uh, and uh, and just yeah it was exciting that there was this new music that just kind of laughed at all the stuff I'd been listening to up at that till that point what about culture fancy and like when, when did that first come on your radar <clears throat> not till later so Bloomington which is where I live now is only an hour south of Indianapolis but being a high school freshman um, you know, it might as well have been a world away. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I never saw a, a Gulcher fanzine until, you know, many, many years later after it had not was no longer being published. So, <clears throat> you know, though that was a college scene. So like the guys in the gizmos and uh, and those bands, MX80 and stuff, they were, you know, they were older than I was. And I never really got to hang out with them, you know, at the time. Would they have those records, though, in that punk section? Like, was that kind of stuff, you know, getting distributed, like, throughout the state? Or is it very much still, like, super, super under the radar? It was still pretty much under the radar. I think I did see, probably I saw a Gizmo single, maybe 78 or something like that was the first time I saw a Gizmo single and was aware that there was a you know, an Indiana-based punk scene. So you got to realize that my high school, I was at a really large high school, 5,000 people. I was the only punk there. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, you know, I wore a leather jacket. I wore my Ramones jacket and I had my spiky haircut. And the kids that would make fun of me, would they'd call me Fonzie. Like they had no, they had <laughs> no idea what yeah. the fuck I was trying to do. Um, and... So I, I just assumed that I was, you know, on an island in, you know, in the boring Midwest and there wasn't really a punk scene. It wasn't until uh, that Gulcher release called Hoosier Hysteria came out um, that I really uh, began to realize that there was there was something happening, not only in Bloomington, but it also in, in uh, Lafayette, Indiana. So I don't know if you're familiar with that record, but it's one half, uh, one side is the gizmos, like the gizmos version to the Dale Lawrence version of the gizmos. Um, and then the B side is Dow Jones and the industrials. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that record that really changed my life. That made me realize that, you know, you could be in a really awesome rock punk rock band and be from Indiana. And that led me to seeing Dow Jones and the Industrials live. And then that was, you know, up until that point, I'd only been to big rock concerts, you know, seeing bands like Cheap Trick or, you know, when, when I was even younger, seeing people like Ted Nugent and Leonard Skinner and stuff <laughs> like that. You know, it was like this, you know, the big rock shows Black Sabbath. And but I saw that when I saw Dow Jones and the Industrials for the first time, it must have been about 78 
And um, they played at a club in downtown Indianapolis that was uh, over 21, but they were very loose about it. And I had a really bad fake ID and I was able to get in. And it was this second story show, uh, club, <clears throat> very small. You know, you could fit maybe a hundred people in there. And uh, I saw Dow Jones and the Industrials for the first time there. And it just blew my mind. I was like, this is, this is as good, if not, way better than anything I've ever experienced in person. And the band is right there. You know, I can reach out and touch the guitar player. And it just shifted my whole perspective about music and what was pop, what was possible and what was important, you know? And uh, I think that that was when I really started to dive much more into the local scene and see bands like the Gizmos and the Panics and you know, the other bands and, and, uh, and form my own band. That's, they are one of the best bands ever. Like that single let's go steady is, is just so unbelievable. Like how popular were there? Were there like a lot of people <clears throat> shows or that show? Yeah. You know, it was interesting in Indianapolis, they draw maybe a hundred to 150 people. Um, probably a little more in Bloomington in their hometown. They were all college students at Purdue university. And Chris Clark, who was, who was Dow in the band, he became student body president <laughs> in like 1978, 79. And so he had all the, you know, he had access to, to college money and he put on some pretty big shows. And so you go to those and there might be 400 people there, but most of them didn't, you know, they were just there to be seen and it wasn't about the music to them. Um, <clears throat> it was very hard for punk bands to get shows um, in Indianapolis and in, in Indiana. And it, they were all over 21 shows. And, you know, there was a very distinct line between like new wave and punk rock. So you could be kind of a new wave band, you know, with skinny ties and Farfisa organs and stuff. And you would draw a bit more of the rock crowd. But bands like my band or even Dow Jones and the Industrials, it's like we were too obnoxious. We played a little too fast. It was too in your face. And um, it wasn't until later when we started to put on all ages shows that really the Zero Boys started to form an audience in, in and around Indianapolis. Dow Jones, you know, they broke up after a couple of years because they were all in college together and then they all went off their separate ways. And um. And that is, that's an amazing single. The, the whole collection of Dow Jones stuff, there's a, I don't know if you've seen that um, like retrospective that came out maybe five years ago on Family Vineyard. Yeah. It's all amazing stuff. It's just like one track after another. It's like, you know, it's, it's Devo core, you know, <laughs> way before anybody ever thought of this term, you know, that I think that they, they, they encapsulate both the Stooges and Brian Eno, you know, in a way that's just absolutely amazing. That's the thing I love about, you know, the, the American Midwest stuff around this time. There's just so many interesting bands that are, you know, it just feels there's so many bands that are just under celebrated, you know, like there's that band last four or five digits. Like I think one of the, yeah. in the band with you later on dandelion abortion, right? That's right. Mike sheets. Um, yeah. So, there was a there was a record store in town called Second Time Around, and they had a four track set up in the back room. And so they started that record label, Hardly Music. 
and they put out the last four or five digits single they put out a single called observers observing observables or the 30 band they released um that dow jones single that you talked about mm-hmm. um and you know, all amazing records and amazing people all those guys are a little bit older than me you know five years you know older than me when and when you're you know you when you're a high school student that's a lifetime oh yeah you know those guys were super cool you know in my in my mind um and what i aspired to be like so what was the first band you started playing in well, my first band was called 3 p.m and it was myself and two brothers rick and randy oxenrider uh and a guitar player buzz kevin and we just formed at the high school so i think I started to get into punk rock and I just started looking around. I realized I could be in a band. So I just started looking around for people who looked like they could either play an instrument or might be sympathetic. <laughs> and so I found them. I think I found Rick, the bass player in like maybe a theater class or something. I started talking to him and he was like, oh, I play bass. My brother plays drums. And so they were preacher's kids, but we practiced in their basement. Um, their parents were very supportive and we put on a couple of shows like we put put on house shows and i think it was the second or third time that we played out um that the guys in the zero boys came to the show and scouted me out of that band mm. that rhythm section goes on to be the rhythm section in dandelion abortion that's a band dandelion abortion that i only really kind of dug into while researching this episode and that live public access show that you guys do in 84 is incredible. (laughs) Yeah, it was fun. Um, you know, I got, you know, I kind of started to get a little disillusioned with hardcore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was a super huge American hardcore fan, although we didn't really call it that, uh, at the time, but bands like the dead Kennedys and the circle jerks and black flag flipper, Red Cross, um, the Descendants, you know, these bands, there was a, such a variety of the energy was so fantastic. And, and that really inspired the Zero Boys to kind of go from being kind of a slower, more traditional punk band into, into playing faster, and which was really where, where we felt more natural. But then it seemed like American hardcore started to become formulaic. Um, it, it seems, you know, and this happens in all scenes, you know, <clears throat> the really big bands inspire a lot of smaller bands. And then all of a sudden you've got a lot of people who are doing the kind of Henry Rollins vibe. And then that kind of goes into this, you know, hardcore slash metal thrash thing. And, and I, I had been into metal, like I wasn't really feeling it. I didn't, you know, like I love Black Sabbath, but I really didn't want my punk rock mixed with metal. It didn't make any sense to me. So those two factors made me kind of uh, do this kind of deep dive into psychedelic music from the 60s. You know, and that's when I discovered Sid Barrett. That's when I discovered the 13th Floor Elevators. And uh, and so that's what Dandelion Abortion was kind of like, well, you know, let's ex- let's explore those edges, but still have it be really fast and really aggressive. 
Yeah, that's the thing I love about it is because it is like, you know, once again, pushing those kind of boundaries, but it does have that kind of hold over to that energy. And it feels like there is something around 84, 85 that happens, you know, like it's the Deep Wound guys becoming Dinosaur Jr. Like there's just like this sort of energy shift that seems to happen with a lot of people that were involved in first wave hardcore where like you're saying like it just got played out for a lot of people um lou barlow blames it specifically on committed for life but by seven seconds but there's definitely records that come out where just people seem to shift gears and start getting in other influences into what they're doing yeah in a lot of ways i think during that period of time american hardcore was a great gateway Mm. um you know it, it it started out I mean, you look at um, letting me eat jelly beans or, you know, even this is Boston, not L.A. And some of those comps, there's like a lot of cool variety on those records. And there's a lot of cool variety in the scene as scenes are kind of turning from punk to American hardcore. But then it seems to stagnate pretty quick. But the people who are really in it because they want to do something original or experimental, they immediately, you know, find a different direction to go in. I guess going back, like how long after you met the Zero Boys guys did you guys do living in the 80s? Uh, I think probably within six months of the band officially forming, we had recorded that record. So we we started out, you know, Terry Howe, the guitar player, he was really the mastermind behind the band. Uh, He had the riffs, he had the direction, he knew what he wanted to do, you know, I remember when I joined the band, the first thing he did was give me a 90 minute cassette of like, this is what we're trying to do. And it was all the Detroit stuff, which I was oh, kind wow. of not really that familiar with at the time. Cause I was just young enough to, I mean, I, I, I'd heard the Stooges and the MC five, but I, I, you know, mostly I had just read about them in cream magazine. He was like, this is what, this is where you come from now. Um, <laughs> And so we learned a bunch of those songs. We learned a bunch of covers and some Ramon songs and things like that. But that was, I thought that was a great plan on his part. It's like, before we write anything, let's, let's, let's learn, you know, all this stuff and figure out what we're trying to do. And then that just, that, uh, it moved very quickly into writing. And we wrote that and the whole thing was, it couldn't have been more than six months from the time that we formed to, to when we recorded that first single. It's such a classic record, like, uh, were like a lot of stuff you guys writing right out of the gate, those types of songs, or was there like more of a kind of a drive to that, as you're saying, that Detroit sound on that 90 minute tape you got? Mm, I think that that's just what we sounded like. Um, I think that there's, you know, there's a a bit of a glam influence there. And I think Mm. that Mark, the drummer kind of brings that in. I'm just a snotty little kid. I don't have any idea what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> I think that part of the formula for the Zero Boys, especially when once you get to Vicious Circle, is that you've got three musicians who are all in their mid-20s, who've all been in bands since they were in high school. They're all actually quite good musicians. Yeah. And then you've got like a 16-year-old kid who has nothing but attitude and is... And, and no self-consciousness, like I'll just do whatever, you know? And so there's a certain innocence, but it's, it's the trick is that, that the band is actually really good. 
Yeah. No, that's the, that's the thing is like the records just, they hold up so much. Like I, I, I gave it to a friend recently, uh, you know, and I'm just like, this is the best stuff like this. It's amazing how ahead of the curve, all that music is on those records. Like it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound of its time. Like it sounds almost like out of worldly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, I can, I can appreciate that stuff. Um, for sure. And it's been long enough ago now in my life that I can listen to it. I don't feel very attached to it, like mm. personally. So I, I think I agree with you. I think I, if I heard that record, if I heard Vicious Circle for the first time today, I'd probably go like, damn, that's a good record. Yeah, it's amazing because like there's so few incredible hardcore LPs, right? Like it's obviously a genre of unbelievable seven inches, but like, yeah. To have a compelling record start to finish there are you know a handful of truly great ones and that's definitely at the top of my list yeah do you have a theory as to why that is uh you know i think obviously the aggression of the genre like i think you just kind of have to keep it short for the most part and uh -huh. it, it's really the bands that could play but i think it's also the bands that were going outside of the genre a little bit like you know i think i think the feeders ever feel like killing your boss is another kind of classic lp and it's got like all these kind of like songs that aren't novelty songs necessarily but like much in the same way on your guys first lp it's got like songs that aren't you know the same thing over and over again pummeling you which is great i love that too but i don't know there's just something about bands that were taking those chances where those lps have just aged kind of differently for me yeah yeah, I mean, as a real music and, and particular recorded music fan, I, I have to agree with you. There's there's not that many hardcore albums where I feel like uh, listening to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but but I will say that that first Dead Kennedys album is as good as any album that I have in my collection, even still today. And I think that that's, you know, it's just so smart. Yeah, well, there are also a band that's, you know, once again, they could all play and they're all, mm -hmm. there are some weird moments on that record, you know, like there are some weird kind of like out of the genre kind of, kind of steps that I think help it kind of retain kind of this weird quality to it. Yeah. You know, they're a, they're a bridge band too, you know, like they're, they're, you know, they, they start out kind of as a punk rock band and didn't develop in, in you know, their whole thing. And then they have kind of the surf element. And then obviously, especially in Jello's case, he's such a music fan. Mm -hmm. And I think when anybody is that much of a fan of records, they're, they're just going to have a bigger vocabulary. It, it's interesting though, because he also has one of the most rigid definitions of what is punk too which shocked me like last time he was on the show uh, i brought up like new zealand stuff which to me falls under punk but he's like that's not punk and i was just so shocked like oh my god <laughs> you're the guy who taught me that we could bring it all into this to the arena and now you're saying this isn't it but i guess everyone's got limits yeah um what when did you have that first connection with the gizmos because you know obviously you're on the red snurts compilation yeah, so who was, you know, uh, at, as soon as I heard uh, the Hoosier Hysteria record, I kind of sought out that whole scene. And and then the Zero Boys started playing um, down in Bloomington. And I met uh, Bob Richard, Bob Gulcher, and, and everybody from the scene at that point. And then we were asked to be on that compilation. And we recorded that those songs for that compilation in at Zounds, which was... Uh, 
the Dow Jones and the Industrial Studio. They had a little eight-track studio in Lafayette, Indiana. We recorded um, with Brad Garten, Mr. Science, who is still, you know, in a lot of ways, one of my biggest heroes. Um, but what's one thing that's interesting is that we we recorded for Red Snurts, and then Bob Richards from from Gulture said, "Okay, I'd like to put out an LP of you guys." And so we went in and we recorded Vicious Circle and uh, we did it in like whatever, two days, mixed it in a third day or maybe in like a half a day or whatever. And we sent it to him and he was like, yeah, I'm not interested. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. So that that could have been a Gulcher record. You know, that's what it was. So now we're like we've got the studio bills like it's only 800 bucks or whatever. But we're living, you know. Yeah. Uh, on whatever spam sandwiches so we uh, raised up enough money uh to to pay for the studio time and then we eventually find this guy bill levin who's kind of our first manager and he he figures out a way to get some money together to self-release that record but we sent vicious circle around to everyone and everyone passed like all the west coast labels of course discord passed because we weren't a dc band but um you know that record almost didn't come out no i don't think anybody really got it that's so wild but i guess it's like you know one of those things that you know if it is really revolutionary at the time no one's going to get it at the time part of the problem was that it's a pop record in a lot of ways like Mm -hmm. it's 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 quite melodic and you know i think that a lot of like a lot of the people in the chicago hardcore scene thought we were just pussies you know like what the fuck is this you know this isn't hard you know it's not heavy it's not it's not a heavy record it's it's fucking it's a lightweight record it's really fast and fleet and it's got this squeaky little guy singing these melodies and stuff so i think at that moment it for a lot of people the zero boys weren't hardcore enough yeah but then here you are too hardcore for culture well, that's so that's the thing, you know, we're just like completely out of step with with either world. And and that kind of affected us locally in a pretty big way. You know, look, um, I think a perfect analogy for that band is that when we made the living in the 80s EP, we pressed 500 copies. We couldn't give them away. We could not give them away. That record, that original record pressing now is worth like 2000 bucks each you know which of course a lot of that is the collector's market which is ridiculous but it's like we just it wasn't until years later years later that people started to say oh this record's really good um it was a slow burn and i would say that probably we sold more copies of vicious circle last year than we did in the first 10 years of its release were there like uh fans of living in the 80s that when they when you guys kind of made that shift and started playing a little more faster that were like we're not into this like we are like other than i guess the culture guys yeah i think that that's it i think the 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 older kind of more established punk and new wave fans in indiana they they you know they stopped coming to our shows and that's when we started having all ages shows and playing to a younger audience we immediately you know um we had a growing you know underage audience mm-hmm. it, it's funny because like when you hear about that shift happening in the west coast the older punk generation is always talking about how the fact that it was the violence and 
you know, kind of this, this aggression that was coming in that really drove them out. It, it, I can't imagine it would have been the same thing with you guys. Like, it doesn't seem like it would have been a really violent scene. Like, were these younger kids more violent? Is that why they were leaving? Or is it just threatening because it's new? Uh, I think it was, you couldn't dance to it. You know, you couldn't do the little two-step and your skinny tie and your tight <laughs> jeans, you know? And yeah. it wasn't a great place to go to pick up girls, you know? So it just like, immediately eliminated that part of the crowd. I mean, I had a good friend tell me once we were on our first Boston tour and he's from Indiana. I'm not going to name him, but a singer for one of the bands that you've probably heard. Anyway, he, he says to me after one of our shows, why are you playing this hardcore stuff? Girls don't like it. <laughs> and it was just like, I just like a light bulb went off over my head. I looked around at the Boston crew and I was like, oh, he's right. You know, but I was like, that's not exactly why we're doing this. That's like, that's not really what we're doing here. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it also feels like it would have been completely at a step with sort of even like the Sonics, like where these people are coming from a more rock and roll tradition where you guys are coming straight from like, well, obviously different with the rest of the band, but like coming from a punk kind of like influence first and foremost. Right. Uh, I remember reading, I think it's in America's Hardcore, that uh, the Dead Kennedy show in Chicago was like a real pivotal pivotal show for you. Was that the show that caused this sort of like shift to something more fast with you guys? No, we'd already been playing faster. I mean, we, I'll definitely say that Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables and Group Sex, those two records are what did it for us just like uh, it just opened us up wow we could be playing a lot faster and then it just felt really natural but it, it came from an influence of the records and then of course the uh, germs gi those were the big influential records and if you listen to gi and then listen to vicious circle they're very different in a lot of ways but sonically their the approach is very much the same um but it was, you know, definitely, I mean, Jello was super supportive, um, but I think we played with the Dead Kennedys before that Chicago show uh, on the West Coast, but I'm not really quite sure of that timeline. But right around, you know, you know, we, we played at a place in Torrance, California called The Barn, and it was us and the Dead Kennedys and MDC and Minor Threat. What a show. Was, Holy shit. I know. Man. That was the first time that like the pictures from the fanzine came to life in my world. You know, up until that moment, we'd probably never played in front of more than 250 people. And this was what? 2000 crazy people. Mm. Um, and yeah, but we were, you know, but by that time we were fully immersed in, in the quicker, faster material. You know, I have to say, too, I really want to put a shout out here to to Tufty, David Tufty Clough, our bass player, because that's a that's a big part of the Zero Boys sound. He joined after the first EP. He joins before Vicious Circle. He had been a player in the Indianapolis funk scene. Um, so fully developed, amazing funk bass player. And, mm. and you listen to those bass lines like nobody else was doing that you know he, he's he's playing at breakneck speed but he's playing these bass melodic kick-ass bass parts that are you know on a totally pro level and i don't think i can't think of another punk bass player certainly from that time period that even 
comes close. Oh yeah, no, those the the I think all the playing like you're saying like everyone can play on those that record and that's everybody. The, that's right. Um, go, going back, like who are some of the bands coming through when you're doing those early house shows? Like, were bands coming through, or are you just doing shows for like local bands? No, the bands were mostly it was Midwestern bands. Mm. So once we kind of figured out that Decroitson was in Milwaukee and the Articles of Faith were in Chicago and Toxic Reasons were in Dayton, you know, these were all places that are, you know, you know, between two and four or five hours from us. So we started playing with them. They started coming here and playing. Um, the one big band that came through that we became really good friends with was tsol so we put on a show an all ages show and tsol played they were on tour um, but mostly it was a midwestern scene you know a few years later by time you know 84 comes along or something then we start to get the bad brains in indiana uh we start to get you know but but mostly it was this those bands and maybe the necros and some of the other midwestern bands that we would see it was pretty isolated yeah like that's the thing it's it feels like eventually though it's almost like you do crowd together and build like a scene out of all these midwestern towns like kind of pooling everyone together like you obviously put out the articles of faith first seven inch and like there's the connection with toxic reason between the zero boys and toxic reason so it feels like there is sort of this interconnectedness and a really strong kind of interconnectedness between all these midwestern cities Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you had to drive a bit farther to find, you know, like-minded people. Um, but they had a pretty solid scene in Chicago. Um, but we didn't really fit in too well in the Chicago scene again, because we weren't, you know, we weren't quite hardcore enough. So if we'd go up there and play, a lot of people would just be standing with their arms folded, like, what the fuck is this? Um, but we, we definitely found friends in all the cities. And that's what, you know, I put out that compilation master tape. I don't know if you're aware of that record, but that's got toxic reasons on it. It's got Articles of Faith. It's got Decroitson. The first time Decroitson are on vinyl, the first time Articles of Faith are on vinyl are on that record. And, you know, that that's what led me to become a, a record producer engineer. So I, I it's the first time I came into the studio with the the zero boys i i just fell in love with the with the studio and i was like it really was at that moment where i was like this is probably what i should really be doing um and so i asked the guy who produced and engineered vicious circle if i could be an intern and he said no i'm not interested in having an intern um because it's just more work for me he said but if you can find other bands to come here and record and they pay for the time i'll teach you what i'm doing and so at that time, um, let him eat jelly beans was out. It's Boston, not LA was out. And I was like, well, why don't I make a compilation of all these, all of my friends bands? And they just happened to be really, really great bands. So they all came to Indianapolis for a weekend. And I learned how to make records that way, which is, you know, that is the ultimate punk hardcore, um, experience the do it yourself experience. It's like, uh, just i'll just i won't be an intern i won't be a second engineer i'll just be a record producer <laughs> well and i think the first one obviously is a classic but i think the one that's super underrated is the second one that you did because mm -hmm. there are so many really i guess ultimately uh, way more obscure bands on it but like uh -huh. 
a lot of very, very interesting bands on it. One of the bands I wanted to ask you about was the gynecologist. Did you record <laughs> that first seven inch? No, no. Uh-uh. Um, no. So they're from Martinsville, Indiana, which is between Bloomington and Indianapolis. It's, it's a, it's a town that's famous for being super conservative. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, those guys recorded that first record on their own. Um, and, uh, I've only ever met the singer, I think. And, uh, it's yeah, super obscure, super weird, super ridiculous sense of humor. But, uh, you know, that's very much the Midwest. I mean, you could, you could go on and on listing bands that like put out one amazing record, starting with the garage rock scene from Indiana that just like one record after another of bands that just put out one record or something, maybe played a couple of shows and then they just disappear into obscurity. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's, what's amazing about this is because it is almost like the nugget scene, but for punk rock, like the fact that you have all these ultimately super obscure, incredible punk bands that in some cases didn't even put out a record, like the band malignant growth, you know, that, that from other people that have been on, like Dave Paha was on, talked about how that's like the key, key band to Louisville. And there's no other real recording other than that volume two of the master tape. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Great band. Oh, incredible band. Like that. Uh, I think they got those. I think those songs got reissued ultimately as another seven inch a couple of years ago, but uh-huh. they're just, uh, yeah. Like there's, you know, and one of many, another band I wanted to ask you about was killing children. Oh Yeah that's on there you produced that seven inch too right yeah i did i recorded that at zounds which was the dow jones studio that's scott colburn um and uh yeah a great record uh hilarious record scott's gone on to be a teacher recording <laughs> engineer producer uh in uh he lives in seattle now john strome from the blake babies was in that band for a minute um i just think that you know in the you you just had no aspirations of ever being successful or selling any records which gave gives you a certain freedom to be like well we're just gonna fucking do exactly what we want because nobody's listening anyway Mm-hmm. And I think there's a power in that. And I think you get that in, in that Killing Children record. I think you get that in the gynecologist record. Do, are you familiar with chemotherapy? Uh, just from the cover. I don't actually have that seven inch. Yeah. You, you need to hear that. Record. Oh, I, I've heard the record. Believe me, I've heard that record, but I'm not. Yeah. That is definitely a, uh, yeah, like another one that's just so out there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, and even still, just, you know, whatever six seven years ago that band the coneheads also from indiana i think they have that same kind of thing you know where it's just like you know just gonna do exactly what we want because we were never this is never gonna go anywhere nobody really cares so what the fuck there's no there's you know there's it's almost anti-careerist the attitude yeah no 100 percent. and it and like punk is ultimately born in the midwest right like going back to the stuff we're talking about from detroit and like the detroit dogs and then you know like the 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 gizmos like that's 74 right that first single comes out devo too right when they're first coming out like it is punk rock and new wave i guess for lack of a better term it's midwest music yeah i think it has all the right elements the midwest has all the right elements it's one it's boring 
<laughs> you know, so there's nothing to do except for make something happen yourself. And then Midwesterners, you know, because society is quite polite, you know, in your face, there's a there's a there's a dark sadness, um, cynicism and sarcasm that leak that lurks right below the surface. And that's a really dark sense of humor. And you definitely get that in that early Devo stuff. Um, and all of these other bands that we're talking about. Yeah, no, you definitely see it. Even, even where it comes out first in Canada, like it comes out in Hamilton before it comes out in Toronto. Like it, it really is kind of born of that same sort of, uh, you know, mid Canadian cynicism too, I guess. Uh huh. <laughs> um, when did you, uh, sorry, when you first got into producing all these records, like when was the first time you realized that this was going to be like potentially a career? Well, I did it for a long time before I made any money at it. It was, I was not, um, I, I never, I, at first I never suspected that I would make money at it. So I, of course, would always have to have some other job working as a fry cook in some kitchen or whatever. It was just, it was just how I identified, um, myself and, and how I, I made life bearable, I guess. So right from the beginning, even before, I don't know, probably, you know, when I was real little, I would listen to the Beatles and Stones records that my teenage brothers and sisters would listen to. And I was just, you know, I just remember being obsessed by the White Album way more than I was obsessed by any particular song or the Beatles themselves or anything. I was just obsessed with that form of communication. You know, the fact that Hey, people in some other country made this record in some room and now I'm playing it in my living room. Uh, that was that. So I was always kind of obsessed with recorded music. And, and once I realized that, Hey, some people are doing this right here in my town. And so I could do the same thing. So uh, uh, I, I was, I'm one of these people that's very fortunate, you know, that, that by the time I was 16 years old, I knew exactly what I would do for the rest of my life. Well, you, you wind up producing, you know, some of the greatest hardcore records ever. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of these records. Like, I guess, first and foremost, Wait. I think, like, Articles of Faith, the first single's awesome, but it's really that second single that kind of cements the legacy for me. And I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that band. And ultimately, you put out that record too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, every band that I've ever worked with that's made a really great record, um, it's because they're a great band. That's, that's, you know, that's the bottom line. And those guys, you know, I caught them right at their peak and uh, we just captured it. And they were, they were amazing players. They'd been a band for whatever, four years by then or three years and great players and a great attitude, super serious guys, you know, like way more serious than me uh, <laughs> as far as, you know, just like their politics and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I just was fortunate to be in the same room with them. We made a whole album, but we only finished the seven inch. And I'm not sure exactly why. I think probably because I could only afford to put out the seven inch, but that all the rest of that material comes out you know, years and years later, uh, there, there was a, I think it's an alternative tentacles release that releases all that stuff. Yeah. I think it's part of a two volume set, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, at some point, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, another record, which is classic is the screams for the, from the gutter album by raw power. 
yeah. was that through toxic shock that you got hooked up with those guys or were you a fan of them already no that yeah bill at toxic shock um he had re-released the zero boys vicious circle like the blue version mm -hmm. so that's how he and i knew each other and he knew that i was a recording engineer and raw power were a band that he was really interested in working with he knew that they were going to be in the midwest so he asked me hey could you put on a show and then record their album and really i don't think i'd heard them i can't say for sure but i'm not sure i'd heard them until they came in the studio because we did the recording before the live show and you know it's it, it's an old analog studio a two inch 24 track you know they're not great equipment a lot of dynamic microphones on the drums i mean it's just like it's all fucking them man it's just all them that all that is is me you know throwing up the microphones and having having a great attitude and them just playing their fucking asses off and then when it comes to i mean i think that record's mixed really well uh, it's very powerful a lot of that's really beginner's luck um you know i was young enough uh, as an engineer at that point when you're really young doing something new that you really love there is there is this beginner's mind thing where everything is intuition um and that record is just it, it was um a perfect storm of elements at that time uh they could speak very little english uh and i could speak no italian <laughs> yeah so we made that record without being able to communicate very much at all and and you know we probably made it in two days uh and then you know recorded it and then mixed it right away and then they played a show the third day and and then that was it i didn't see them again for years and years and years until i went you know zero boys played in maybe 88 in italy or something like that uh, is that how cheetah crow motherfuckers i guess hooked up with you too after the raw power thing yeah now they yeah they came to me probably because of the raw power record mm -hmm. uh and that's also a really great record oh absolutely yeah you know and it explores the boundaries of you know of what you're supposed to do in punk rock and in different ways now see that raw power record that is a metal record to me um but it is absolutely a punk record like state oppression is fucking perfect man as a punk rock song but you got that that those guitar solos and that double kick pattern and stuff i mean you know as as little as i like you know punk and metal combined that fucking record i could still listen to it anytime and i oh. often play it for people you know as a show-off piece it is one of the great uses of cowbell too in punk yeah 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 um uh yeah no i th i think that i think though all those italian bands just kind of get overlooked like some of their later records you know obviously raw power that record celebrated but like that cheetah crow motherfuckers records kind of overlooked and even negazioni's later stuff like all those bands were good the whole way through and you're like you're right the yeah. metal stuff comes in there but they use it kind of tastefully yeah yeah that's right um i think that you know <laughs> All right. Well, I don't, I don't, there is, what does commerce have to do with this? You know, like once you have a Slayer, once you have a Metallica, you know, like, does that change people's aspirations and, 
does it change what they think is possible? And I don't know. Well, it's funny you say that because like you were saying, because there's not a lot of pressure in the Midwest, I've always been kind of intrigued by the notion that because Toronto is such a music industry town, we don't have such a, you know, huge hardcore scene because there's so many people going into new wave and metal because those were viable career options. Like it's not like, the the same sort of like you have to be truly hardcore to want to be in a hardcore band when you have the option of potentially making it in a metal band or a new wave band in the midwest everything is a dead end if you're a free thinker it, you just look around yourself and it just looks like a fucking dead end so if you don't want to you know if you don't want to exist moment to moment in a dead end you create something mm. but you're just creating it because that's what's going to keep you sane it has nothing to do with commerce. Um, all of that kind of changes, you know, and, and now things aren't as localized as they were back then. But it definitely at that point in time, I think that that's that's the key factor, the Cleveland bands. But it's, you know, it's also the key factor in New York City in 1974, 1975 in the Ramones. That's a fucking dead end scene, man. Yeah. New York is a fucking dead end place at that moment in time. And uh there's just no way that, you know, the strokes could possibly be as inspired as the Ramones or the Velvet Underground. I just don't think it's possible. But they have the they, they kind of get the cliff notes by being inspired by television or by the Ramones, you know, like they, they kind of, I guess, are getting the influence one step removed. Yeah, but it's not it's not an influence like of just survival yeah no definitely you know it's 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 on some level it's record collection rock it's one step removed yeah no it, it is amazing and i've also been kind of like obsessed with this idea of how this music changes geography in a lot of cities you know like like without these bands and without these you know very small kind of scenes would you have you know williamsburg looking the way it does now or would you have you know, look at a city like Athens, like how was Athens changed by the development of punk rock, you know, or, or, yeah, you know, it's, it's just, it's fascinating how these like ripples end up changing these cities. Uh huh. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really put much thought into that, but I think that that's, you know, that's, that's a valid line of study for sure. Uh, a band that I've been obsessed with and have studied for a while that you did work with, and I'm I'm just mind anyone for stories about this band is Boom and the Legion of Doom. Uh, <laughs> uh, you recorded their first two singles, I believe. Like, what was it like working with those guys? Because there's a lot of really wild stories about them. They were very well behaved whenever they were around me. <laughs> um, Smelly was the guy who I always talked to, and he kind of like you know, was the co-producer and, and, uh, kind of the organizer and stuff. They were just like weird. I mean, I always just kind of saw them as weird mid, um, Michigan kind of redneck hillbillies, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, factory people, you know, like I, they, they, they felt exotic to me <laughs> even, you know, it, uh, but yeah. And they, they had great deer jerky. I remember that uh, that the one of them worked at a at a processing plant, a processing house where people would bring the deer that they'd killed hunting. And one of the products that they made was deer jerky. And whenever they would come and record, they would bring me deer jerky. 
there's a, a legendary show uh, that I guess they played with Youth of the Day in Detroit, where according to legend, they picked up a dead deer on the way to the show and the dead deer was thrown around the venue and Youth of the Day was scarred for life from this incident. But the next day, apparently Rollins played and found the deer skull and licked the eyeball on stage. And that is also <laughs> part of Detroit legend now. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds that, you know, that sounds totally doable. I mean, they were certainly familiar with deer carcasses before <laughs> that. So yeah, it probably wasn't really a thing to them. Uh, what was it like working with Stevie Stiletto? Uh, awesome. Th those records are now, I think, celebrated. Um, but there's, you know, talk about a band that's obscure, like, you know, for and a band that was prolific and lasted a very long time. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. They were super fun to work with. I just worked with them on one one record and it was really quick. I'm sure it's something that we did in a day. I mean, to be completely honest, it's all all that was so long ago. And these weren't like heavily produced records where we had some sort of budget. It was like always like, all right, we got we got 350 bucks. You know, <laughs> let's go in for one day and we got to record and mix it all at the same time. That's well, that's what my early career was like for several years. Uh, a couple of years ago for my birthday, my friend got me. Uh, a demo reel tape from ardent studios for, of you the harder uh, side of of yourself is what it's actually called um and i just want to know uh did you record a lot of stuff at ardent or and what was it like working with jody stevens and i guess loric waymouth which is i guess tina waymouth's brother yeah that's so weird that is such such a weird artifact so um they approached me and said, uh, hey, we like some of the stuff that you're doing. We would like to represent you as a producer because we're starting this roster of producers, most of them in-house, but we're also interested in working with some people who aren't in-house. So uh, we ne I never recorded anything at Ardent. Okay. I, don't think it ever, I don't think it ever came to anything. They were super nice, but I don't think that they ever found me any gigs. I think that I was really, I would have been very out of place. Although I love so many records that were made there. It's a sick tape, you know, it, 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 with the Zoo Gods track on it and the Afghan wigs and the Zero Boy. It's, it's, it uh, stands up as a demo. I'd uh, hire you. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Zoo Gods are a great band too. And of course, Afghan wigs. Wow. Such an incredible band. Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, do you remember when you first uh, came across them and started working with them? Yeah, I was in a band called Detura Seeds um, that was touring around the Midwest at the same time that they were. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how we ended up on the same gig, but, it, you know, we were blown away by what they were doing and they were fans of ours as well. So we probably played five shows together over the course of a year, either in Cincinnati or in you know, Oxford or in Indianapolis or, you know, the, so we became friends. And through that, I did that. It, it was really just a sub pop singles club record for them. Mm. And then it ended up one of the songs ended up on their first sub pop album. So that was really it was it was brief my working with them. Uh, but, the, you know, they go on to like have their own studio, uh, Ultra Suede in Cincinnati, which is really uh was built out of qca records where a lot of the early funk records were made but great guys 
it's it's interesting because you know you talked about your heroes early on that taught you how to record and it's like ultimately with you know mass or you know the guys from the afghan wigs like you kind of are passing on that knowledge to the next generation of people too yeah yeah i mean i feel like a peer of all of those people certainly um but i i do uh, I, I do put a fair amount of energy into education at this point in my life in particular. Um, you know, I teach at Indiana University here um, in Bloomington, and, um, and I'm always kind of looking for situations where I can be in, where I can pass along information. If I find, you know, engineers that seem to have a, a sympathetic ear to the way I hear music, then um, I will offer myself, you know, to do whatever I can to help them with what they're doing, whether it's listening to stuff or mixing for them or mastering for them. But I've definitely reached that point in my life where that's that's my primary focus right now is try to give back to the younger people who do what I do. It also feels like throughout your kind of career, you're also, you know, there's a lot of different attempts to kind of build scenes and build like, you know, the or kind of like galvanize the stuff that's going around, like that bl black brittle Frisbee compilation yeah. that you did yeah. or the master tape compilation or, you know, the fact that you've got like, well, the Zero Boys have three labels, ultimately, including, I guess, your own labels as well. Right. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm I'm a team player. I've always been a team player. That's that's what I like to do. And um, nothing is more fun to me than hanging out with musicians and trying to do what I can to help build a scene. You know, Brian Eno has this concept of scenius. Have you ever heard this? No. Where it's like, yeah, he talks about how, <laughs> you know, we like to, as, as humans, we like to talk about how important particular artists are and how they were geniuses or particular mathematicians or scientists and this guy's a genius but if you just scratch the surface a little bit you realize oh there was a lot of people working on this problem or there were a lot of other artists in this scene and they were all inspiring each other it's all about the senius i've always been trying to involve myself in senius and also just kind of looking around for where that is in existence in music and in you know a lot of the when you look at the bright spots or these bright scenes you realize like uh, it's not just one band it's not just rem it's rem and pylon and because of the b-52s you know mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. you know it's just like it, it, it human interaction is where real brilliance shines I think that's the thing that's amazing about punk is because it is so linear that way. And you can see this sort of like real tradition that's still passed down. Like you mentioned the Coneheads, right? Like you can trace that right back to, you know, yourselves and then ultimately the gizmos, you know, Kurt Vile putting out records on culture, you know, like there's mm -hmm. still, there is this continuity to this scene where it does, you know, sonically not even necessarily remain the same, but the energy kind of, you know, goes out and is taken up all these different places. Yeah. So I teach this class. I'm not know if, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I teach a class at Indiana University at the Jacobs School of Music called the History of Punk Rock. I know, want yeah. to take this class so badly. Yes, I, yeah. I'm aware of it. 
Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of the class is about, is about that. It's, it's about looking at, it's looking about, uh, about looking at place. It's about looking at events that cause these things. It's about looking at the, um, you know, the base materials necessary to create punk, you know, and like, and then also looking at these timelines and, you know, punk, the attitude it's, it's been around forever. You know, it's it's the philosophy has been around forever. The the first thing I talk about in the class is Diogenes, the the Greek cynic, you know, who who kind of brings within Greek philosophy, brings that kind of punk thing forward. You know, it's okay to live on the street. It's okay to be a dog. You know, Alexander the Great comes to him and says, "Is there anything that you want? You're the great respected Diogenes, the cynic, the." the great philosopher and Diogenes says to Alexander, you're standing in my light. If you want to do something for me, get out of my way. You know, that's fucking punk, man. That's the, that's the ethos, you know, right there. And, and, and then also that has, it's, it's real, it's political, it's natural and it's funny. So this is the, you know, I think that this is the one thing that I want people to talk about um, when they're talking about punk, I think that you, in the list of things, anarchic, aggressive, you know, fast, dangerous, humorous, humorous. That's, that's, you know, the sex pistols are fucking funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Black always... flag is funny. Yep. Fugazi, not so much. <laughs> Well, the humor doesn't have to be intentional, right? Like I think, I think, I think, I think, you know, whether, and I think Ian can even laugh at it a little bit himself at times, you know, like, I think that's the thing is you're right. There's a self-awareness, which I guess is ultimately where humor comes from. Like I, I've always felt like a strong connection between professional wrestling and, and, uh, and punk because both of them kind of like subvert the thing that they're supposed to be a part of with wrestling. It's sport, you know, and, and with punk, it's music. It's it's right. When I started teaching at the at the university, which this is Jacob School is like a high level classical music, you know, institution. Mm-hmm. It's like second only to Juilliard as far as places to go for students from all over the world to study cello and piccolo. And so when I first started talking about the class with this woman, Connie, who is kind of runs the music and general studies program. And I kind of told her was like, you know, punk kind of makes fun of rock. And she said, that's like operetta and opera. Mm. (laughs) I was like, really? (laughs) It's like, so there's, there's this tradition of like, yes, you're right. Uh, Championship wrestling makes fun of sport. That's fucking awesome. We all our existence on this, in this world is ridiculous. And certainly the structures that we've created, the existence that we've created is fucking ridiculous. You know, the clothes that we wear, everything that we've done to separate ourselves from nature is a joke. And so it's good to reflect that back to people like, you know, don't take it so serious, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, and it's amazing, like where, you know, the people that are kind of are drawn to this, like moths to a light bulb, like go wind up doing stuff, right? Like, you know, like who would have thought that the guy that worked on screams for the gutter works on, you know, Mellencamp records, you know, like it's just the continuity and the places that this stuff goes is, is fascinating. I guess ultimately though, Mellencamp's first seven inch comes out on Gulcher, right? Like that, way back that when. Is, 
That is true. That is true. Yeah, he's a huge uh, first generation Gizmos fan. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, he, he, he figured out. I mean, he was a huge Stooges fan. He's New York Dolls fan. He's just like somebody who figured out a way to do what he does and make millions of dollars at it. He's a very genuine, very real, very intense person. One of the most tenacious people I've ever met in my life. And uh, certainly he's made moves to try to sell records and and be relevant and, and things like that. And there's there's some consciousness, you know, in his moves. It, it's but but ultimately he's a super music fan and and he'll surprise you. I mean, he can talk about the replacements. He can talk about Husker Du, you know, you can talk about public enemy. Well, you can write a song too. Like that, I think that definitely. Like I, I'm, I'm a big fan, but now I love him even more knowing about the Gizmo stuff. I, mm-hmm. I, I, that's that's awesome to know. I guess that makes sense being on Gulcher, but it's nice to know that it wasn't just a coincidence. There's a fan. No, they were running around in town at the same time. Oh, that's you know? so awesome. Um, I could I could talk to you forever, Paul. And anytime <laughs> you want to come back here and get punished some more, I, I got a million more questions to to force you to answers so i won't keep you forever though okay well thank you very much it's been a pleasure i love to talk uh, before i let you go though i just want to ask you one thing what was it like speaking of the stooges working with iggy pop i was never in the room with iggy oh it was I mean, all it, remote it was yeah which you know that was still a long time ago but that's the unfortunate part of the job sometimes you, if you're just a mixer or whatever you know Sometimes you don't even know if the artist liked it until it, it appears on the record. Well, I can tell you one thing. I love this, Paul. And anytime you want to come back here, the door is always open. All right. Well, thank you very much, Damien. Thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. And here, right there, Paul will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. And uh, yeah. I cannot wait to talk to him more. Also, a huge thank you. Huge thank you, because this thing was really kind of brought together by someone writing in and and just saying, like, yo, you got to get Paul from the Zero Boys on. William Sibley, uh, thank you so much for your support on this thing, because, man, that was a huge thrill. And if you're in any place where you can take Paul's class on punk history... It's like having like Michelangelo teach you a Renaissance painting class or something, you know, so take his hardcore history class. I wish I could, you know, I'm going to go back to school, be like Rodney Dangerfield, you know, and, and just go back to school and, and learn, learn about hardcore. That's what I should have done the first time. I think I, I think I would have done a lot better with this thing if I just focused on that stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm in college forever doing this podcast. Speaking of educating, this week on the show, coming up a little bit later, we're going to have an episode that opened my eyes to a lot of things. I learned a ton about the Seattle music scene and a lot of stuff. This is a really fun episode. From the band 10-Minute Warning, from the band Skin Yard, from the band The Living, and from the band Mother Love Bone, Greg Gilmore is on the show. Uh, This is a really... Fun conversation. As I say, we hear a lot about stuff, including the formation of Guns N' Roses. And yeah, this is this is a fun one. This is a good one. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, pick up that living reissue. If you have not seen this thing, it is a fantastic uh, reissue of Duff McKagan's first punk band. And it has been put out by Loose Groove Records. And oh, 
That was good. I, I'm I'm stoked for you to hear this one. I, I, I think this is a really fantastic conversation with someone that you know played in a lot of bands that are key key to different scenes and also bands that unfortunately you know their legacies are kind of just in these live settings. Anyway, I'm rambling on now. You're going to hear this all next week. We get into it on the episode. All right, that's it for the show. Thank you for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. Uh, We need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people and peoples of different faiths. And just, this isn't uh, political issues. These aren't political issues, I should say. This is just basic human rights shit. Just people wanting to be free and not have to deal with violence or, you know, just, I don't know, just get involved read about what's going on in this world uh lend your support uh lend your time to organizations lend your financial means if you have it to different organizations that are doing good work basically it boils down to fuck fascism there's no space for that stuff it's not not here not here never never uh go out there and do something creative you know make your own culture you never know where it's going to take you You never know, you know, you could be like a teenage kid fronting a band with a bunch of older people and years later, you know, people look back on it and said, oh my God, you made one of the greatest hardcore records ever, you know, and you know, you never know where it's going to go, you know, and you don't even have to do something like make a band, you know, you can start a podcast, you could do a zine, you could, you know, whatever, whatever, draw a picture, you don't have to share with anyone else, just do something creative, it'll help with mental health. And speaking of helping mental health, I didn't believe in this stuff, but I've been, you know, just even using just an app, like I'm not even doing anything super serious, but I found that meditation really has helped me. So go there and try it. Maybe it'll help you. Who knows what's the worst that can happen. I didn't believe in it. And and now I, now I kind of do. And so, um, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. Just Just get it out of me. I don't need this shit anymore. You know, you're not saying it, but someone's saying it for you and that's it. Um, wear a mask, get, get yourself the shot, you know, (laughs) stay safe and we'll get through this thing. I still, I've been saying it the whole way through and I, I really believe it because you have to believe it because if you don't believe it, what's the alternative? Um, but I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.